when it comes to innovation and creativity, you just never know what resonates. And so the best way to find good ideas is to have loads of ideas and then embrace this notion that there's an interaction between the idea that you have and the person having the ideas and the society in which they throw the ideas into and how that society responds to those ideas validates whether the idea is going to have traction or not. And to the extent that those ideas have traction, then they're much more likely to become successful. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders. Rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Jason Mark Campbell. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. We're going to talk about something that is very key to pushing humanity forward. I know this is one of the big statements of what Valley looks to do at a continuous basis. And at the core of this idea of pushing humanity forward is the idea of innovation. It's a word you might hear in some fancy lingo marketing campaigns. You might hear from Apple or these big tech companies saying that they're trying to push innovation. But really, what is it? How is it created? And is it the responsibility of businesses? government, or is it more specifically the individuals within a company? This is why I'm so excited to bring Tendai Viki here, who is an author and innovation consultant. He's been an associate partner at Strategizer, which is a great company. We've had past guests come on the show that are really trying to help companies innovate for the future while managing their core business. Now, his accolades are absolutely amazing. He has co-designed Pearson's product lifestyle, and it's an innovative framework that won the best innovation of 2015 at the Corporate Entrepreneur Award in New York. He's been shortlisted in Thinker 50 Innovation Awards and Thinker 50 2018 radar list for emerging management thinkers to watch. Now, he's done some keynotes around the world with companies you may know of, such as American Express, Lufthansa Airline, Airbus, Unilever, Standard Bike. The list goes on. And this, we're going to be going deeper into the world of innovation, but he has written three separate books on the topic, which include Pirates in the Navy, The Corporate Startup, and The Lean Product Lifecycle. This man has a wealth of background when it comes to research and application in the corporate world. This is going to be fantastic. Tendai, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. You have one of the most impressive lists of accomplishments. This is incredible. You've worked 12 years in academia. You've done research at Harvard, at Stanford, and you seem to be obsessed with innovation. What brought you into focusing so much on this idea of innovation? Yeah, first of all, <laughs> my wife doesn't care anything about that list of accolades. She's just like, take out the trash. <laughs> So, so I don't know. I've always had a keen interest in creativity. When I was younger, I was into music. I was part of a hip hop group and we used to record and tour and, and all that. So just the creative process and how artists work has always interested me. And so as I moved into academia, I kind of started off, strangely enough, as a forensic psychologist, because I thought I wanted to be a forensic psychologist, but then that didn't really work out. I didn't enjoy it that much. So then I moved through sort of my PhD, I ended up starting to research creativity and innovation. In particular, I caught the bug when I was at Stanford as a fellow, because when you're there, you can't escape the ecosystem. And so it's just really great. That's how I ended up even making the decision to move away from academia and start working with companies more directly was actually during that sort of stint that I did at Stanford. Mm. Now, you talk about something important here because you walk into an environment like Stanford, close to Silicon Valley, tons of graduates there end up being tech founders, tech startup. There's a big fellowship, there's alumni. 
you get bred into being this type of forward thinking, innovative type of person, everything's possible. And I know the big topic you speak about is how sociological challenges are the key of innovation. There's limits that happen within the culture to drive innovation. So what are you seeing in places like Stanford that even got you so curious about the field that is possibly lacking in most corporate environments around the world where they don't have this fire for innovation? So most of the properties are emergent. It's not stuff you can, I mean, you could design it from scratch, but the way Silicon Valley happened was emergent. It was a collection of human beings trying to solve specific problems. And then the venture capital model emerges. And then that creates an ecosystem of investment. One of my favorite comments that I like is a comment by Fred Wilson, where he says, you know, he works with a one third rule, which is that one third of the investments you invest in will fail. One third will be mediocre. And the other third is where he'll get his returns. And what that does is instead of landing the message that when it comes to innovation and creativity, you just never know what resonates. And so the best way to find good ideas is to have loads of ideas and then embrace this notion that there's an interaction between the idea that you have and the person having the ideas and the society in which they throw the ideas into and how that society responds to those ideas validates whether that idea is going to have traction or not. And to the extent that those ideas have traction, then they're much more likely to become successful. But the creator themselves, it's hard for them to predict the winning idea on day one. And so while the startup founders always have a commitment to their idea, the venture capitalist does not have that level of commitment. They're making bets. And they're only hoping that one third of the bets they make bring the returns and the other two thirds, whatever, right? And so it's a really interesting ecosystem because if you then try and translate that to a large company, then it becomes kind of strange because who's the VC and where is the ecosystem of ideas and how do you replicate that acceptance of failure and how do you tell a CEO that they can't pick a winner when they they face their career on trying to pick a winner. So it's a really interesting dynamic that you have to deal with there. Well, if you're talking about a success rate of 30%, that doesn't look very good for a CEO trying to manage a well-oiled machine is usually what you would call operational efficiency in a corporation. You're supposed to have a department that has only a 30% success rate. I feel like we hear stories of some companies being able to nurture that kind of innovation within their corporation, but it doesn't seem to be the standard rule. It seems to be more like the exception. Are there things we can learn from these exceptions? And are there common traits between these companies who have been able to have that success? Yeah. So the first thing you have to tell leaders is we're not expecting you to have a 30% success rate on the core business. That's already got customers, you know, channels, you know, products and services and value propositions and price points you already know. Over there, we're expecting you to have a 100% success rate. And then next year, you optimize it, you get a 200% success rate. We want you to constantly improve that. But when it comes to your innovation portfolio, if you take that same expectation to innovation, what happens is you start asking for things from the innovation teams that give you the confidence that they're going to have the same level of success as your core business. And the more and more you ask those questions, the more people start to self-censor and filter away their more breakthrough unknown, innovative ideas, what ends up happening is if we take those same principles and practices, again, this is a sociological problem in this sense. And I always say this to every leader. Every single one of your direct reports has a theory about the kind of person you are. So because they have a theory about the kind of person you are, they understand that their success in the job and how they can keep the job depends on you approving of their work, rewarding their work and responding positively 
to what they do. And that's what we all do. We all have a theory of person for every single person we know. And that determines how we behave around those people and how welcoming or accepting we are of those people. So if the theory that people have of you as a person when you're a leader is that you only like things that fit into the core business, then what you've done is you've automatically created a filter in the people's minds where if they have anything breakthrough, they won't tell you about it because they want to keep their job. So companies end up working on things that are very similar to things they're already working on. Mm -hmm. So they've already created a space in which they only get ideas that are going to be 100% successful. So what is the model that you want to imitate? And this is what's really fascinating about this is that when it comes to R&D, which is a different exploring technology or even pharmaceutical R&D, there's an acceptance that if you're a pharma company, 90% of the molecules you explore will produce nothing and only 10% will become the breakthrough medicines that end up becoming successful out in the world. And somehow in the economic model around R&D, that is accepted, the market even accepts it. To say, what's your R&D pipeline? How many things are you exploring? And the market expects that you'll only get a few of those things becoming successful. And then they want to see which things you have are close to success and close to launch and which things you're closing. They even have this metric about investments in R&D as a percent of sales, as a metric to measure how well a company is doing in exploring R&D. But somehow we haven't developed a similar economic, social, business conversations around innovation because it's the same thing. It's the same principle. You try a bunch of stuff, see what works and what doesn't work, and then you double down investment on those things that work. So what is the ratio of your investments in innovation versus sales, right? So that's really the model that we're trying to get leaders to start thinking about and imitating. I love the fact that you call the book Pirates in the Navy. And I think for those who haven't been exposed to that literature, it'd be great to just hear more unpacking that analogy, because it seems like you have to behave very differently if you're in that unit. Yeah. So this is a special shout out to the entrepreneurs on the call. The entrepreneur right now is like the mythical Greek hero of contemporary society. We celebrate entrepreneurs so much these days. I remember when I was younger, my parents were just like, you don't be like entrepreneurs. Those people are crooks. You need to get a real job. But these days, we celebrate entrepreneurs so much. And the more brash the entrepreneur, the more we celebrate them, like the Elon Musks of the world, the Mark Zuckerberg. We celebrate entrepreneurs so much, they've become iconic figures. They're almost like celebrities in their own right. Now, it was Steve Jobs, another iconic entrepreneur, who said, it's better to be a pirate than to join the Navy. That's what he said, right? And what he was talking about was this distinction between the slowness of large companies and the inventiveness of startups. But if you're going to be innovating inside a large company, then you need to become a pirate in the Navy. And the question is, what is the difference between an entrepreneur and an intrapreneur? And the difference is not really around interest in innovation, loving ideas, exploring customer needs, all these things that entrepreneurs need to be successful. The only other thing that the entrepreneur needs to have that the entrepreneur doesn't need to have is political acumen. So the serial innovator, because they're working inside the large company, have to add this extra sort of feather to their cap. They have to really think about how to build relationships, build bridges, interact with people in the core business, deal with MBAs and people from legal and finance. They have to build that bridge to the core. The more they do that, the more successful they become in getting their ideas scaled up. Corporate innovation is definitely a sociological thing because if you don't know how to do politics, and politics just means relationships among human beings in the same space. And so that's really what we're talking about. And that's what you have to become good at in addition to being a really great innovator in terms of ideas and product services. 
as you say this, I just imagine myself in most of the jobs that I've held in the past. Mine Valley happens to have a very big tolerance, I'd say, for pirates within its navy. And right. I think for me throughout my career there, I've definitely been the one that shake things up or work on ad hoc kind of departments or whenever random project. I remember the first Mind Valley University, they kind of threw me on that project and they're like, we need to figure this out. And I was like, all right, let's go and let's run. I don't ask too many questions, but over here, I was given a lot of space. I was given a lot of understanding. I sometimes didn't follow full procedures because we had to do like rapid testing and things just needed to deploy fast. And because I was at a place like Mind Valley that had that tolerance, I wasn't being reprimanded in the space where I wouldn't necessarily be following the steps exactly or having a 100% strike rate as you speak about. What is that thing you can do if you are an individual that's got that itch for innovation, but you're not seeing that your leadership's even going to recognize that error margin that's necessary to have breakthrough results where you have to fear your job if you see yourself going for these more innovative ideas? That's kind of like, if you're going to be a boxer, right? If you're going to be like, I'm going to do boxing. I'm going to be a boxer. As soon as you step in the ring, expect that the other guy on the other side is going to want to punch you, right? So it it kind of comes with a job. You can't like step into a boxing ring and get punched and then go, hey, man, what, what you doing? And so if your choice is to be a corporate innovator, then you've basically chosen to be resisted from day one. You're choosing a job in which people continuously tell you, we don't do that here. And your job is to say, actually, we can do that here. Give me enough of this one step so that I can show you. That's just the job. The problem with leaders inside large companies is they hire the innovator and then they go, go do some innovation. But they don't clean up the environment to allow the innovator to actually thrive. So the innovator thinks, oh, yeah, the CEO hired me. I'm now head of innovation. I'm cool. I can do whatever I want. Two weeks later, they can't do whatever they want. I was on a call just today talking to a really great innovator who works in a nonprofit. And I was asking him whether he thinks the company should have an innovation function. And he said, I don't care if you give me a head of innovation, if the head of compliance still got the same power. And so you can really see the mix of that. So the moment you decide to take the role of a corporate innovator, you've decided that part of the job is working on your idea and part of the other job is having people punch you in the face while you're trying to do it. And if you can't really take that, then you might want to join the ranks of the entrepreneurs. That's some cold water thrown on our face of reality of how it is. And yeah, like I've had my quote-unquote fistfights, not really. It wasn't fistfights, but I've had my, all my concentrations and I look back at it and I can look at him with a smile as we talk about it. If you're not ready to take these punches, really the best way to be a better boxer in this case, even if you're an innovator, is really to embrace this whole political acumen as a necessary skill set, right? Are there like key things that people can do as individuals that maybe could be Rules of thumbs are full pause that you could do so that you don't get hit so hard, or maybe you can strike better since we're using this analogy. <laughs> yeah. So here's an interesting quote. I think his name is Hobie Darling. He used to run the Nike lab where they were working on fuel bands and stuff like that. It's got a really wonderful quote. It's in Kyan Krippendorf's book, Driving Innovation from Within. And he says, like, the job of the innovator is to line up the cannons, is to line up the 
finance canon, line up the legal and compliance canon, line up the HR canon. And I added to that story by saying, you do need to line up the canons because some of them are actually pointed at you. So you need to turn them around and point them to the market. So, so the job of the corporate innovator is to line up the canons. But the advantage of being a corporate innovator is that if you succeed in lining up the canons, when they go off, they go off with a big bang because you have access to more resources than a small startup. You have access to customers, you have access to markets and channels and all these brands and all these benefits that come with being part of a really well-established organization. And the price you pay for access to those resources, you have to line them up. And you line them up by building really great relationships. So to my mind, there's two things that entrepreneurs need to be really good at. And both these things require them to be authentic. That really matters, this need for authenticity. And the first thing that you have to be authentic about is to understand that ideation is not the same thing as innovation. Technology is not the same thing as innovation. Having a hackathon is not the same thing as innovation. Having an idea competition is not the same thing as innovation. Having a lab with sticky notes and foosball tables and bean bags. Hey, maybe if you work at Google, you might even get a chef. None of that stuff is innovation, right? If you just do all of that stuff, but you don't point it towards creating actual value, then we call that innovation theater. It's stuff that looks like innovation, but it's ultimately creating no real value. And so that's part of the disservice that I see sometimes corporate innovators do to our movement, which is they get a lab, they have events and pizza nights and all of this stuff, but none of the stuff they work on is ever taken to scale out in the market. And then after like three, four years, I meet the CEO and the CEO says to me, oh, don't worry, Tendai, we tried the innovation thing. It doesn't work. And I'm like, tell me what you did. And they describe it. I'm like, nah, you didn't try the innovation thing. You just had like some people in a lab working on ideas, but they weren't really working on innovation. And so that's really what's really important. You have to be authentic. The reason why authenticity helps is that the more wins you get, so the more success you get in terms of creating value, the more credibility you build for yourself. And the more you draw people to the movement that you're trying to build, which is different from walking around with a PowerPoint presentation going, you're going to get disrupted. Look what's happening at Amazon. Because that's what corporate innovators think they need to do to build relationships. But without actually illustrating how it works inside that organization with an early win, it's impossible. So I often say to corporate innovators, if you're starting out, your job is to get an early win to build your credibility. And then use that early win and storytelling to then get the support you need from the rest of the organization. If you start looking for the support without the early win, you don't have any credibility to actually do that. Hey, everybody that listens to Superhumans at Work, know that all of these episodes are recorded with a live studio audience. Mind Valley members get a chance to join these sessions with the author themselves while we record these sessions. And at the end of every show, they actually get to participate in a Q&A session as well. If ever you're interested in joining Mind Valley All Access and become a member yourself, you'll get access to all the incredible courses from Mind Valley and so much more to be involved with Superhumans at Work, the Mind Valley podcast, and all the other incredible features when you become a member. We are disrupting the way that education works for the 21st century and we want you to be a part of it. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman so you can learn more about this incredible offer, which will cost you less than $2 a day. That's mindvalley.com forward slash S-U-P-E-R-H-U-M-A-N. 
sounds like you do need to nurture some of your sales skills, right? You need to be a good person that can actually sell. And having that early win, I got very call it lucky, or I just applied something I already knew, but I brought some ideas I had developed at a previous company I was working at. First thing I did when I came into Mindvalley is I started doing like a subscription type of business. And then the whole company started pivoting towards this because it was a major innovation. Companies were not doing it yet, but I had seen it in the past. And then that gave me, like you said, that kind of credibility that next ideas came with weight in the executive board. I could say, this is the experience I bring. This is the success that I've had, which made pushing things forward so much easier. You know, when I started Mindvalley, I was like 20, 24, 25. So in my twenties, I almost had this blind ignorance and blind self-confidence. Whereas like, I didn't know any better, but I just appeared confidence in the process. And I feel like that's maybe a symptom of youth. When we come into a corporation in our twenties, we feel like we know everything and we want to just innovate. We don't think anything that's happening already is good enough, which can translate sometimes into not necessarily putting in the work to respect the existing systems. Like, Do you have some advice on that, especially for the younger people that are listening that might be saying, oh, I hate this company. They don't let me innovate, but you haven't went to get your win yet. Yeah, exactly. It sounds to me like you were in a really cool environment that gave you the space to be this enthusiastic young person. The rest of us who work in traditional companies, we get our innocence stolen from us in the first month. Like all that enthusiasm dies, right? It's just like, okay, I guess I'm just going to be here waiting to get promoted from level one to level three for my pay rise, et cetera. I think that's something that you have to be aware of. But here's the thing. Forget about innovation. Think about any idea or any ideology. A lot of people in the world, once they're convinced that they're right about something, start to believe that they're entitled to have people listen to them. They no longer give people the option to disagree or to not really see things from your point of view. And so what happens is when we become convinced, correctly so, that disruption is a thing, the speed of technology change is a thing, large companies dying is a thing, we need to be innovating in order to create new growth. But all those are truths that we've now been converted, if you want, towards we start to get frustrated if we can't get our leadership to share the same beliefs. But if you actually look at life from your leader's shoes, they have no reason to believe you because from where they sit, they got a $3 million bonus last year and the company made $5 billion. You telling them that they're going to get disrupted, it just doesn't resonate. So that's the first thing. And then the other thing is, even if I did believe your story, that we're going to get disrupted and I buy in. I have no reason to believe that you are the one that's going to save us from disruption. I have no reason to that. And what people don't realize is that if I'm a leader, the number of people that come to me with ideas of things I should be doing on a daily basis. <laughs> and so while it might be personal to you because you're coming to me and you're experiencing it yourself, you're like one in 10 people. Not only that, like in the last three years, I've brought in five other consultants from Deloitte and McKinsey who were supposed to help us with innovation, but nothing happened. So I'm already like skeptical. And then this 25-year-old comes in and just because you went to Stanford, I'm supposed to believe that now you're the one that's going to save the company. No one is entitled to listen to you. And the moment you understand that, you then start thinking, okay, well, if no one is entitled to listen to me, how do I build the credibility that then creates the space for people to actually listen to me. And the question I often get is that, okay, well, if no one is listening to me anyway, how do I even get a chance to build that credibility? And the advice I give young innovators is 
try and find early adopters. We tell this to startups. We say, find your early adopter customer. It's the same process here. Try and find early adopter leaders inside your organization. Most companies that I've worked with, there's always leaders that are interested in innovation and meeting young people and working with young people and giving young people spaces to try things. So if you can find a couple of early adopter leaders and help them succeed in whatever is bothering them, then you've already got an ally that can then help you tell the rest of your story. And it's all part of just building this credibility. And that's the political commitment that the innovator needs to have in order to succeed inside a large corporation. I absolutely love this. And I wanted to bring one more perspective in this conversation, which is fascinating, which is if I'm either an entrepreneur and I'm building a business, obviously I'm hiring people. There's people that are working within my team, or Mm -hmm. I'm one of these people in a leadership position, possibly labeling myself after hearing you speak as one of those early adopter type leaders. What are some of the things that I can do to make sure that I do not kill the innovative drive that some of the people on my team would have? And then maybe on the other side is how do I become better of a champion as a leader so that it keeps moving up the organization? Yes. One of the concepts that we work on is a concept we call innovation readiness. It's based on this principle. I don't know who saved this, by the way, but something about if a flower fails to bloom, you don't blame the flower. You look at the garden in which it's sitting and the nutrients in the soil and you don't say to the flower, come on, bloom, bloom, which is what leaders say to their team. We need more ideas. It's like, well, the reason why you're not getting more ideas is because the environment is not conducive. So if you're a leader and you want to work with entrepreneurs and you view yourself as an early adopter leader, then your job is to become an ally. And the job of the ally to the innovator is to remove blockers, try and create a path for them to navigate their ideas through the organization. If you're like a senior leader, you probably have like a network of connections. You've got favors to call in. And all those kinds of things. That's really your role to help the team navigate their idea from idea to scale through the organization, which speaks to the second concept that I have inside Pirates in the Navy. So the first concept was about being authentically focused on creating value. Then the second part is being authentically interested in building an innovation practice within your organization, transforming the company to become a repeatable innovator. So the one part is, can we create value? Yes, every now and again, we can get a project, but then can you do it over and over again? And the do it over and over again piece, that's the job of the early adopter leader. Because there's two types of people that are working on innovations inside large companies. There's the people that are working on the innovations, which are the products, services, et cetera, et cetera. So their job is to create innovations. And then there are people that are working on creating innovators. And the people that are working on creating innovators are different from people that are working on creating innovations. The people that are working on creating innovators are distinct in this way. If a team runs into a problem with, say, legal and finance, they're not interested in just helping that team get over that hurdle. They're interested in helping that team get over that hurdle, but also creating a new set of rules so that future innovators don't have to run into the same roadblock. So they're in the business of creating innovators versus people who are working on products and services who are creating innovations. So these are like road builders, path builders, bridge builders, versus people who travel on the bridge. So which job do you want? It depends on your constitution for politics. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, Tendai, I absolutely love this conversation. I think for everybody listening, depending on the role that you are in currently as an entrepreneur, as a career person, as a leader, you have a lot of things that you can take action on here. We've seen here that the culture needs to actually have an acceptance of the high failure rate that does happen when you're trying to do innovation. Tendai is very clear that the rule that he's seen in Silicon Valley was only a 30% or one out of three success rate. So if you have that level of acceptance, when you are going for innovation, people will have more comfort being more bold and trying ideas that could totally fail, but yet again, could have the possibility of being a major success. As an organization, if you're in a position of shaping policy and understanding what these innovations you want to drive need to exist, you need to have a reassurance to the whole team that, hey, you don't get fired for a failed idea. You just keep making good ideas. And eventually we know that there's things that are kind of bring to fruit. But the question is just feeding these additional innovations within a corporation that you have these people that actually innovate which you might find yourself in a role where you want to bring innovation, you can find these early adopter leaders who are people that are helping drive innovation by enabling the people that want to do it by taking away these roadblocks. If you're inside that organization, you know, you need to be developing that political acumen, your salesmanship. You have an additional customer to deal with, and those are the peers within your organization. It's a price you pay to be able to access these additional resources, which gives you a chance that whenever an innovation strikes, you'll have access to more capital, more customers, and more of everything that most entrepreneurs could only dream of. And so, yeah, there's a little bit of work to do, but the reward definitely can pay off massively. I highly encourage everybody tuning in here, definitely go pick up a copy of Pirates in the Navy so you can go deeper into this topic. And of course, we're going to put some links so you can follow more from Tendai Vicky's work. He's been doing incredible things working with companies. And thank you so much again for coming to share with all our superhumans here on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really fun conversation. Once again, everybody, thanks for tuning in to Superhumans at Work. I'm very grateful for all of you who tune in on a regular basis, listening to these amazing interviews with these guests that I get to find. Now, if you're subscribed to the show, definitely leave us a review if you can and share it with friends so that we can spread the message and get more people to be able to learn of these fantastic ideas that they can bring in their everyday life. And these episodes, of course, are brought to you by Mindvalley. When you go to mindvalley.com forward slash superhuman, you get to discover the transformational education that we get to deliver where we bring the best technology, the best teachers, and ensure that it teaches you what leads to a truly incredible life. Thanks again for tuning in and watching the show. And until next time, stay superhuman. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mindvalley podcast.